not fair that he does that right before I get up here to preach. <coughs> well, I don't know. Maybe Jesus could just come back now. We'll be all right. Take your Bible and turn to Revelation 18, if you would. We're going to continue our study in the book of Revelation this morning. And um, as we just sang, you know, Jesus is coming back. And the book of Revelation tells us those events and those things that will happen that lead up to his return and his kingdom. Now, just to kind of catch us up, we had a great uh, Thanksgiving week. I pray that you did too. Uh, family home and, and ate too much. I think you had to repent immediately after, but it was good. But we pick up again this morning in the book of Revelation uh, in chapter 18 with what we might entitle the destruction of Babylon. Now just to kind of remind you for those uh, who are watching online and maybe the first time, chapter 17 and 18 are, are called parentheticals. Uh, in, in, in biblical terms, that simply means they don't advance the events of the tribulation. The tribulation reveals to us those things that will happen in the last seven years of human history before Jesus returns at the Battle of Armageddon and sets up his millennial kingdom. Well, chapters 17 and 18 uh, fill in detail. They don't really uh, advance the, the chronological order of events. And what these two chapters do, and they go together, you'll remember from last time, a couple of weeks ago, uh, chapter 17 talks about how God will destroy false religion in the tribulation. Uh, you find when you read the Bible, interestingly enough, that Satan is not against religion. In fact, Satan is very pro-religion. Uh, it started in the Garden of Eden. He you know, came to Adam and Eve and said, hey, if you want to be like God, do it this way. Uh, he's not anti-religion. He just doesn't want us to do life God's way. Uh, he has his own way. So uh, chapter 17 tells us that in the tribulation, there will be a false prophet and there will be this prolific false religion uh, where people will actually worship the Antichrist, and God's going to destroy that. He's going to wipe it out uh, because it's evil, and he's going to judge it. When we get to chapter 18, uh, God also said that he's going to destroy the uh, kingdom of Antichrist, which is called Babylon. And it is his political economic system by which he will uh, rule the world. Now, it's called Babylon here. Because you will remember, we pointed out a few weeks ago, that the first organized rebellion against God after the flood uh, was a guy named Nimrod, who was the great-grandson of Noah. He was a mighty warrior, and he led a bunch of people to a place where they built the first Babylon, the first city, and they built a tower there. And they were going to build this tower up to heaven uh, to, to worship the stars and not worship God, to be pagan. And God, of course, confused their language, scattered them all over the world, and, and, and hindered their plans to build this Tower of Babel. Well, that same attitude of rebellion is in the heart of man today, and it will again reach its apex in the tribulation where man will, will completely rebel against God uh, in, this, uh, in this Babylonian system, if you will, under Antichrist, and God's going to destroy that. He's going to destroy it in two forms. Antichrist will no doubt have a capital city somewhere. Now, people really get a kick out of trying to figure this stuff out. We don't know where his capital city is going to be, and I don't know if it's going to be where the old Babylonian capital, who knows where it's going to be. But the fact is he will have a capital city somewhere, and God's going to destroy it. God's going to show him that you're not really in charge. Connected to that city, obviously, is a system, 
an economic, a political system and that's completely set against God, God's going to destroy that as well. Uh, because why? The kingdom of Christ is coming. And so God reveals in chapter 18 the destruction of that, of that uh, antichrist system, if you will, his military, political, economic system. And we find that beginning in, in uh, verse 1. So look at the first three verses of chapter 18 with me in your copy of God's Word. Now John said, After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his glory. Uh, and he cried mightily, this angel cried mightily with a loud voice saying, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and has become a dwelling place of demons, a prison for every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hated bird. Verse 3, For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. The kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have become rich through the abundance of her luxury. Now, John, again, is receiving this vision. He's in heaven. God's giving, giving him this revelation. And he says after he saw the last vision, the destruction of the false religious system, he says another angel appeared. Well, that very simply means that another of the, of the innumerable number of angels in heaven, another one, a different one from the one that he, he heard from before, comes forward and begins to reveal uh, what's going to happen uh, to the Antichrist power and his system in the world. Now, we learn some things that, that's interesting by, by, by these angels. Number one, we see that there's a multitude of angels involved in God's plan. In fact, as we read the book of Revelation, we find that God employs many angels to do different things in the administration of his kingdom of heaven and how he's going to interact with man and judgment during the tribulation. So this angel is just one of many who's involved. Now, it says he has, he has great authority. Where does his authority come from? Well, it comes from God. He has great authority because he's carrying out the commission of God. He's carrying out that thing which God told him to do. Can I say very quickly that when you share the gospel with people, you do so with great authority. When you do the work of God, you do so with great authority. You say, well, it doesn't look like I have great authority. No, you do because you represent the king. If you meet somebody on the street and you share the gospel with them, do it with great authority. Not arrogance, not pride, but with authority. In other words, don't be ashamed to tell people about Jesus. Don't be ashamed to tell them what God said in the Bible. Now, there will be people in the world who will ridicule you, and they'll say, I don't believe that, and they'll say all kinds of things. But listen, that doesn't change the truth. The truth is the same. So this angel speaks with great authority. You and I speak with authority when we speak for the king because you are his ambassador. You're his representative in this world. This angel comes to speak and reveal this thing to John with great authority. He speaks with confidence. He speaks, he speaks with assurance because we know that whatever God said is going to happen is what? It's going to happen. And so the angel speaks with authority. Now, we're also reminded here that angels in heaven have degrees of authority. There's a rank structure among the angels in heaven. There's angels who are higher than other angels in their responsibilities. There's cherubims and seraphims, and there are archangels. This angel comes with great authority to speak the command of God. Now listen, another thing that I thought about this week while I was reading this, it's interesting, I never got past the first verse for a while. This angel, this angel is completely obedient. All the angels in heaven are obedient. As soon as God gives a command, man, they're, they're gone. You know, go deliver this message, and boom, Gabriel's down there talking to people. Go, go do this, and the angels go right away. Kind of puts us to shame, doesn't it? 
I mean, how different that is among mankind. God gives us a whole book telling us what to do, and half the time we don't do any of it. But the angels are obedient. They do what God told them. So this angel shows up. He shows up in great authority. And it says he illuminated the whole earth. Well, a couple of reminders here. The earth by this point is in darkness, right? Because under the bold judgments, God turned the lights out. So it's dark. Well, this angel shows up and he illuminates the earth. Why does he illuminate the earth? Because he's been standing in the presence of God Almighty himself. And the glory of God's all over him. When he shows up in the earth, he's radiating. Some of the glory of God is on him. You say, boy, does that happen? Well, it happened to Moses. Remember, Moses went up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, and he couldn't be right really in the presence of God uh, like an angel because God said no man can see him and live because of our sinfulness. But God let some of the residual of his glory shine on Moses. And when Moses came down off the mountain, they had to put a bag on his head because he was shining so bright that people couldn't stand to look at him on his face. So this angel who had been in the presence of God comes down in all of his brightness and in his glory, the glory of God upon him to make this announcement. And what is this announcement? Babylon has fallen. Now that's interesting because when he makes the announcement, it hadn't happened yet. In fact, when we read it right now, it hadn't happened yet. Why does God speak of it in the present tense? Why does God speak of it as a thing that's already happened? Because if God's determinant, it is good, has already happened. You find that in the Bible a lot, by the way. You find God giving prophecy in the present tense. You find God giving prophecy in the past tense, meaning as if something already happened. Why? Because God determines what happens. And to God, when he decrees it, it's as good as having already happened, which ought to encourage us today because if you're saved, the completeness of your salvation, in God's view, is already done. We just haven't realized it yet. Just had not got there yet. But when God speaks of our salvation, how does he speak of it? As a done deal, as finished, as glorified, as already his children. So the angel speaks of the fall of Babylon uh, as, a, as a certainty, as a thing that has already been determined. Now, when he gives the announcement, it means it's going to happen. Secondly, it also means that this city, wherever this capital city is at, certainly means it's going to be destroyed. And it also means the world system will be destroyed. Now, let me give you some reasons here from this passage of why God is going to judge the world system of Antichrist, and you'll see some similarities here. Number one, he said that this city and this system of Antichrist has become the dwelling place of demons. You see that? It's become the dwelling place of demons. Verse 2, and he cried mighty, uh, mightily with a loud voice, saying, Babylon the great has fallen, is fallen and has become a dwelling place of demons. There are three times in human history in the Bible that you see demonic activity reach an apex. Three times. One was before the flood. Right before the flood, you go read in the book of Genesis, demonic activity was, was rampant in the world. What was Satan trying to do? He was trying to so corrupt the seed of man that God couldn't complete his plan to bring the Messiah into the world, bring the Savior into the world, and ultimately bring in a, a nation like Israel and the kingdom. Satan knew God had a plan and he was trying to corrupt it, but it didn't stop God's plan. The second time you see demonic activity in the Bible reach an apex is when Jesus was here. When Jesus was here, there were a lot of demon-possessed people, and Jesus went around casting demons out of people and uh, doing great works, and you see that activity. The third time in the Bible when you see demonic activity reach an apex is during the tribulation. And I would suggest to you today as we move through the church age and we move more toward the time for the rapture and more toward the time for that antichrist to be revealed and for the tribulation time to come, demonic activity will increase in the world even today. I would suggest it already is. 
I mean, when you see some of the things that people do, there's no other explanation than evil influence and demonic influence. And so God said he's going to judge this city because of the demonic influence. Let me remind you of another thing. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that when the church is raptured, the restraining uh, force of the Holy Spirit, if you will, the restraining work of the Holy Spirit in the world will be removed. Meaning right now in the church age, we look around at society and we think, man, wickedness seems to be out of control. Let me remind you of something. It's not as bad as it could be. The Bible says the Holy Spirit is restraining evil in the world today. The Holy Spirit is at work in the world today, convicting men and women of their sin. The Holy Spirit is still calling men and women out of the world to Jesus Christ, and, and they're being added to the church every day. But there will come a time when the church is taken out of this world, when, the, when, when Jesus appears and raptures his church. The Holy Spirit's going to remove his restraining force, according to the Apostle Paul. And you ain't seen nothing yet, I guess would be the way to put it. In other words, demonic activity and evil in the world will then be be untethered, if you will. There'll be no restraint. Wickedness will, will abound in a way the world's never seen, and that will reach its apex again in the tribulation. And so God said, I'm going to judge Babylon. I'm going to judge this wicked system in the world because it's out of control, because it is unrestrained, and God's going to pour out his judgment. Secondly, all the world is guilty. All the world is guilty. Verse 3, for all the nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Everybody's bought into the program. Everybody's bought into the, into the secular humanistic view. Everybody's bought in to the sin and the worship of Antichrist. And God said nothing's left but judgment. Let me tell you two or three things that the world's buying into today that reflects what will happen in the tribulation. Number one is materialism and wealth. Everybody today, all the generation today cares about is what they can get, what they can have, their stuff, materialism, houses and cars and money and position and prestige. And I want to have a voice. And I want everybody to listen to me and what I think is important. Let me say this kindly and gently. Yes, your opinion is important to you. But God's opinion is the only one that matters. And if your opinion differs from God's opinion, then you probably ought to keep your opinion to yourself and ask God to forgive you. Listen, the world system in the tribulation will be completely bent on money, power, reputation. I want to be in the system. I want to be thought of as successful. I want to have all the things that this world can afford, all the nice things. And it's endemic in us, is it not? It's endemic in our flesh. I mean, I confess it. I drive by the car lot and see those brand new shiny cars out there. And what do you think sometimes? You think, man, I could see myself driving one of those. Until you look at the sticker on the window. And you go, man, that's a house mortgage. I can't afford that thing. But see, it's in us, isn't it? It's in us for things and for money and for, for this world. And here's what Satan wants to do. And he'll do it to the children of God. That's what we really got to watch out for. Is he'll get us so focused on the things of this world that we forget about the heavenly things. 
He'll get us so focused on the temporary things of this world that are all going to burn up and go away that we, that we become useless in the kingdom of God for things that are eternal. Well, see, lost men and women, by the time they get into the tribulation, that's going to be all it's, all it's about. It's about riches and wealth and materialism and trade and merchants and owning businesses. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things. If God's blessed you to, to have a lot of worldly possessions, then just remember this. God gave it to you to be a steward of it not for all selfish use. But in the tribulation, people will be just bent on this world. And God's going to judge them for that. He's going to judge the kingdom for that. Let us be very careful because I see it in our society today, and you do too. The seed of that sin is already latent in society, and it's already at work. Secondly, if the world isn't just after materialism and after wealth and after power and fame and all those things it's after luxuries and pleasures of the flesh in the tribulation the bible says that as we study this the world will be inundated and drunk with mood-altering drugs and alcoholic beverages and sexual immorality and we see it in society today do we not do we not see it already working that way in our society today. In our society today, there's talk of legalizing many drugs now that are illegal. Now, you can have an opinion about that if you want, but let me tell you something. When people are, are medicated so that they don't know what they're doing or they can't control themselves, that's an unsafe environment as far as I'm concerned. If people are medicated, uncontrolled, just for the feeling just for the euphoria, then that's an unsafe situation. And the same is true of alcoholic beverages. You know how I feel about alcoholic beverages. And don't ever come to me and say, well, it's my Christian liberty because you're not going to like what you get back. Listen, the only, listen, as children of God, the only, the only person that's supposed to be in control of us is God the Holy Spirit. Not drugs and chemicals and alcohol. And let me tell you something, Satan uses that stuff to reduce a person's inhibitions and to reduce their, their, their consciousness of what they're involved in, which just leads in all forms of immorality. And the world is headed that way, hook, line, and sinker today. The world is moving that way, and you'd have to be blind not to see it. Now, I'm not talking about medications that a doctor gives you and things that you need, okay? But I'm saying there's a recreational idea of, of drug use and alcoholism in the world today that's destroying young people. And it's destroying lives and it's destroying a generation. And some people say, well, you're just old and you don't understand. No, I am old and I fully understand. I've seen what it does to people's lives. I've preached to funerals of people that alcohol has killed, either early or later in life when it was rough. I've seen it. The world's headed that way, and in the tribulation, it will be without restraint. It will be without restraint. Let me, let me encourage you this morning as a child of God. Don't get sucked into that system. Don't get drawn in as a child of God in all the worldliness. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're either going to serve Jesus Christ or you're going to serve the world. You can't do both. And the world wants to suck us in as Christians. Listen, if you're saved, Satan can't touch your soul. But he can destroy your usefulness for Jesus in this world. And it's going to reach its apex in the tribulation when the church is gone. So God said, I'm going to judge them for those things. And then God gives a word of warning in verses 4 and 5. Notice what he says there. Now this is God speaking out of heaven. Notice verse 4. John said, and I heard another voice from heaven saying, 
This is God speaking from the throne room of heaven. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive her plagues. For her sins have reached up to heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Now, what's God saying there? There will be people in the tribulation who will be saved. There'll be Gentiles and Jews who will put their faith in Jesus Christ and they'll be saved. We've already seen that many of them will be martyred. Many of them will be killed for their faith. They'll be arrested, they'll be tortured, they'll be persecuted. But some will be saved and they will escape the Antichrist's onslaught. And Jesus says to them, God says to them right here, come out of that system, come out of the city, Come out of that system unless you fall under the same judgments that's going to fall on them. In other words, God said, I'm going to judge their wickedness. You need to step aside. I'm going to judge their wickedness. You need to move out and be somewhere else. You say, boy, does God do that in the Bible? Let me give you a couple of illustrations. You'll remember that, that when God told Noah he was going to flood the world, and he told Noah to build an ark, listen to me, Noah preached for 120 years. That's how long it took him to build the ark. You know, they didn't have power tools back then. Can't even imagine. So he's hammering and sawing and sawing and hammering and cutting down trees, and he's building the ark. And for 120 years, he preached, and nobody would get in the ark. Nobody would believe him except him and his family, his three boys and their wives. And the destruction came and killed everybody. You remember when Jesus comes down with two angels in Sodom and Gomorrah? The Bible says the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah had become so bad that it reached up to heaven that Jesus came down in a theophany with two angels to check it out. And Abraham and Jesus are standing up on the side of a mountain, and Jesus reveals to Abraham and said, he's my friend, so I'm going to tell him what I'm going to do. Boy, isn't that, isn't that neat, by the way, to be called a friend of God? And if you're a child of God, you are the friend of God. We sing a song about that. But Jesus says to Abraham, hey, uh, we're going to destroy those two cities because the wickedness has reached up before the Father, and we're going to wipe it out. You remember the conversation Abraham had with, with Jesus? He said, well, Lord... I don't want to misspeak here. I'm just a man. You're God. But far be it from you being righteous that you would, listen, destroy the righteous with the wicked. Would you do that? And Abraham said, if there's 50 righteous people in the city, will you spare the city? Remember what Jesus said? You're right, Abraham. I won't, I won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. If there's 50 in the city, I won't destroy it. But you know what Jesus knew? There ain't 50 in there. And then Abraham said, well, 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 what if there's 45? Jesus said, I won't destroy it for 45. Then Abraham said, I'm on a roll. How about, how about if there's 30? Jesus said, I won't destroy it if there's 30. How about 20? Jesus said, I won't destroy it if there's 20. How about 10? Jesus said, I won't destroy it if there's 10. You know what Jesus knew? There ain't 10 in there. How many were in there? Lot, his wife, and his two daughters. That's four. You say, well, Abraham should have kept going. Yeah, maybe so. But here's what I'm saying. God sent the angels into Sodom and Gomorrah and almost physically removed Lot and his wife and his two daughters from the city before he destroyed it. God won't destroy the righteous with the wicked. God says in the tribulation, he's going to tell those who are saved in the tribulation, look, you need to get out of town. You need to move out because judgment's coming, and I don't want you to get caught up in the judgment. I don't want you to get caught up in those things that are coming. Listen. If you're here this morning, if you're watching online and you've never surrendered your heart to Jesus Christ, you've never been born by faith in Jesus Christ, God's given you a warning today. God is saying through this book, there's judgment coming. 
And he's saying, if you don't want to be a part of that judgment, if you don't want that judgment to fall on you, come to Jesus. Ask him to forgive your sins. And listen, the wrath of God, we are delivered from the wrath of God in Jesus Christ. So come to him today and be saved. Come to him today, not tomorrow, not later this afternoon, but right now. If you're watching online or you're here from your seat right now, I wouldn't wait another moment right now. I'd say, God, save me. I'm sorry. Forgive me for my sin. God gives a warning. Look, I'm going to judge them. And then notice it says here, not only is God says he's going to judge them, but it says God has remembered her iniquity, that her sins have reached up to heaven. You see that? Well, that first tower, they were building it up to heaven, remember? Nimrod and his group, they were building it up to heaven. This is a metaphorical example of the same thing. The sins of Babylon's kingdom of the Antichrist have reached up to heaven. And so now God is going to respond. That's a way of saying that now it's time for judgment. And it says that God remembered her iniquities. You see that? God has remembered. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean God forgot. It doesn't mean God goes, oh, yeah, I meant to do something about that. No, that doesn't mean that at all. It means that God has a record of it. Uh, in our Wednesday night Bible study, I was telling the, the uh, owl class <clears throat> that uh, God has books in heaven. Consider this. This is, this is kind of, uh, this will get you where you live. Everything we say or do or think, God writes it down. Yikes. Everything we've ever said, everything we ever do, everything we ever think, God writes it down. It's in books. Guess what God's going to do with them books on Judgment Day? Dust them off. Boom. Let's see. Robert Ball. Oh, yeah, right here. That doesn't make you feel very comfortable, does it? Oh, let me tell you the answer. Here's a good answer. Ready? The Bible says that when you come to Jesus and you get saved, all that stuff's covered. And here's the best part. The Bible says God puts all our sin behind him and he doesn't look at it no more. And he casts it as far as the east is from the west. So you know what that means? When I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, not the great white throne judgment, at the judgment seat of Christ, I will only be judged for my service to Jesus after I was saved. None of my sins ever going to be brought up again. You know why? Because it's covered under the blood of Jesus. Now, now listen, here's the scary part. If you're here this morning and you're lost, and you never come to Jesus Christ, and you find yourself standing at the great white throne judgment, which you surely will if you don't come to Jesus, God's going to open those books, and he's going to have your whole life recorded right there. And he's going to read those sins off to you. You know why? Listen, you know why? Because God is a just judge. And his judgment and his condemnation of you will be based on your sins. He's a just judge. I Listen, I implore you. I would plead with you today. Don't find yourself in front of Jesus on judgment day at the great white throne judgment because there's no remedy there. Now is the time to be saved. Now is the time to be saved. God remembered her iniquity. God pulled up the record of their sin and wickedness of the world. And so he pours out his judgment on a lost world. And then we see the justice in verses 6 to 8. Look at it with me as we finish up this morning. Render to her, to Babylon, to that system, her just, uh, to her just as she rendered to you. 
and repay her double according to her works. In the cup which she has mixed, mix double for her. In the measure that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, in the same measure give her torment and sorrow. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I'm no widow and will not see sorrow. Verse 8, therefore her plagues will come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judges her. This is a description of the judgment of Antichrist system, and it comes in three areas very quickly. Three areas. Number one, she will be judged because of pride. Because of pride. Pride glorifies self. Pride uh, glorifies itself against God. In fact, pride takes a deep satisfaction in one's own achievements. Pride takes a, a deep satisfaction in one's possessions and one's abilities. Pride runs rampant in the human heart. Pride looks at the face of God and says, I did this, you didn't do anything. In fact, secular humanism says that today. Secular humanism says that science and man's ability is the answer to all that man needs. How blind do you have to be to believe that? Pride is an offense to God. Let me read you something from Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 to 19. Listen. These six things the Lord hates. Pause there. That's a pretty strong statement, isn't it? These six things God, what? Hates. That's a strong word. Listen. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. What's the first one on the list? A proud look. God hates pride in man. God hates the fact that we think we're all that. God hates the fact that we think we're the solution to our own problems or that we achieve great things on our own. Tonight, in our message tonight, will be from Psalm 127. You know how it begins? Unless God builds a house, we work in vain. God hates pride. We can't accomplish anything in this life without God being a part of it. God hates pride. God will judge Babylon because of her pride. Secondly, God will judge them because of their self-security. She said, I will see no sorrow, says Babylon. Antichrist says, I'll see no judgment because I am God. No, God said, you'll see lots of judgment because I'm God and I'll judge you. And he'll bring justice. In fact, he said, give to her double as she has done wickedness. Give to her the full measure of judgment. And then finally, godlessness. Godlessness. The society of that day will be completely devoid of any knowledge of God. Listen, do you not see these three things in our own society today? Do we not see that, that we are full of pride as a people? That we're full of arrogance? Our own nation is a prideful nation, and we should be on our knees before God. Our whole nation thinks that we are self-secure. We think that our military and our money and our resources make us untouchable. Yeah, well, I think in the last 12 months, God has reminded us just how easy it is to touch us. What do you think? Put businesses out of businesses and close an economy down. God is not happy with the sin of this nation. I can say it again. God's not happy with the sin of this nation because we have turned our back on him. The only thing I can say is let us not be part of it. Let us be different in the world. Let us live differently. Let us not partake in the things that the world finds so uh, lucrative and attractive. 
let us not be consumed with the things of the world that will reach its apex in the tribulation. And finally, our nation has become godless. Godless. You say, well, pastor, we still worship Jesus and we still have churches. Yeah, but the numbers are shrinking. The numbers are smaller. The numbers of Christians in this United States are falling. And the numbers of those who claim to be atheists and agnostics are growing. We are becoming a godless nation. And think about our generation and the younger generation to come. Who's going to carry the torch? Which is why it's so imperative that we teach our young people and our children to love Jesus and to follow him of their own accord. Not because we make them come to church, not because we force them, but because they know Jesus and they want to follow him. Let me close with this. I don't know how much clearer for those online and those who will watch these videos later, I don't know how, how much clearer God could say what he's going to do here. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I, you know, we, we pastors, we study and we try to say it as clearly and explain it as clearly as we can. If you're lost today, if you've never been saved, if you're, if you're outside of Jesus Christ, I cannot imagine why you would be under the sound of God's word today and not want to be saved and not want to deal with your sin now as not to face the wrath of God because it's coming. It's coming. It may not be in your generation. You may die and face Jesus after death, but God is Jesus is coming back. He's going to rapture his church. Tribulation is going to begin. And at the end, Jesus is coming back at the battle of Armageddon. He's going to set up a kingdom here. and He's going to rule with a rod of iron. So you can bow to knee today, or you can bow later in judgment. It's your choice. I suggest you don't wait till later, because it won't be good. Do you need Jesus today? Do you need him today? Maybe you are saved this morning. So, Pastor, I'm saved. What do you look like you're saved in your lifestyle? I mean, honestly. Not, not, just honestly. Be honest with yourself. Do you look like you're saved, or do you look like the world? Do you do the same stuff the world does? Do you talk like the world? Run around like the world? Party like the world? Same sexual immorality as the world? Same, same pleasures in the world? Is that why you live? Is that why you're here? Or as a child of God, should you be living for Jesus? Pointing people on the way. I mean, you can live a normal life and be a Christian. You don't have to be weird to be weird. I mean, some of us can't help it, but you don't have to be weird to be weird. But just live for Jesus. I mean, just be real. Be a man or woman of integrity. If you say you love Jesus, then act like it. If you say you love Jesus, then his word ought to be special to you. And his church ought to be special to you. Man, this stuff's pretty cut and dried, I think. It's pretty straightforward. The fact is, this morning, you're on one side or the other. You're either in with Jesus by faith in him or you're out. Which one? There's no middle ground. There's no, you ain't straddling the fence. Are you saved or not? And if you want to go to heaven, Jesus is the only way. Period. End of discussion. If you want to come to him today, I invite you. Would you come? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I don't know how you could say it any better. You're going to judge this world system. You're going to judge the sin of this world. God, forgive us for being a part of it. Forgive us, God, where it infects our, our flesh and our hearts. 
where we get consumed with things here. God, forgive us for that. Lord, let us be set in our mind to serve one master, and that's you. God, if there's somebody here this morning in this place and they've never been saved, God, would you save them right now? From their seat where they sit, God, they could just call out to you and say, God, I'm a sinner and I surrender my heart. God, save me right now. Forgive my sin and save my soul. God, you'll save anybody who will ask. And God, what a difference you make in a man or a woman's life when they'll just trust you. Father, help us to make a difference in this life. Help us to be a, a light and a voice and salt that we might share the gospel with those who will hear. Bless the invitation now in Jesus' name, amen. As we stand and sing, I'll be down here. If I can help you or pray for you, don't be ashamed. You come, I'll be glad to help you.